This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program this evening, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program, and we certainly, as always, are glad that you chose to make us a part of your busy day. We're going to do something that we haven't done in a little while this evening, because Frankly, there's just been other stuff in the news, the crazy election that refuses to end. I mean, there's all kinds of other things that have kept us away from this. And, you know, there's been not that much to report recently. But here in the past couple weeks, things have kicked up when it comes to the coronavirus and how it relates to the state of Alabama. And so what we're going to do is we're going to really quickly take a look at some of the numbers and the averages. Right now in the state of Alabama, we have 260,359 confirmed cases. 1,615,948 have been tested in the Yellowhammer state. We have 3,776 deaths and 25,821 people have been hospitalized. So if you look at the fatality rate, the overall fatality rate, it is currently 1.45, and as always, we adjust for the CDC's estimate that about 10 times as many people have the virus as we think that they do. So that means the real figure is probably closer to in the ballpark of 1.45, which makes it, as we've been saying for weeks now when we do these coronavirus updates, just barely more deadly than the flu overall. And if you're gauging that by age and demographics, it's actually significantly less deadly than the flu for certain age groups, significantly more deadly than the flu for other age groups. So let's go ahead and dig into some of these numbers and take a look at what they actually mean. So let's go ahead and look at the overall cases in the Yellowhammer State. So you can see the new coronavirus cases are seven-day average for this week, 2,468. Our previous seven-day average is 2,147, and that leaves us with an increase of 321. So looking at the averages, that is a steep increase, but that doesn't even really get to the, the nitty-gritty. It really doesn't display how big of an increase this has been. Now, it's been a while since we did our last update because I think it was actually before the election, and that's been you know about a month ago now. But the last time that we did an update, we were looking at averages somewhere around 1,000 a day. And so the seven-day increase doesn't really look all that bad, but it will, it will look a little bit different when you see uh, some of these numbers compared on a month-by-month basis. So if you're looking at the 28-day average, so our monthly averages, the 28-day average for... Uh, Oh, actually, that's a mistake. That That, that is this 28-day average. I just forgot to change the dates there. So, yeah, that's uh, this is using an old uh, an old stat, but the, the number right there, the 20, uh, th- 20 it, sorry, 2,130, uh, that actually is correct. And so th- that is what we're looking at right now. The uh, previous 28-day average, so um, this would have been... Yeah, that's uh, what, what I did was I got the dates mixed up. So uh, that's the previous 28-day average back before we had a mask. That's uh, 1,156, and that would be an increase of 974. So that's an almost doubling, and so you can understand very quickly how that is a substantial increase from what we had been seeing. 
Now, this is not necessarily the time to panic. A lot of people, and we're going to talk about this in a column by Kyle Whitmire and AL.com, that they're making the numbers, the numbers as far as cases go, do look like they've increased substantially, and they have. That's not incorrect, but the takeaway and the reaction to it has been slightly incorrect, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But regardless of what the reaction should be, regardless of what our response should be, whether you're talking about the government or us as individuals, regardless of that, there is no question that the cases have gone up substantially. So let's go ahead and look at these other numbers. So this is the hospitalizations. Our seven-day average for this week is 2,468. Our seven-day average from last week is 186. So you can see that that is a really, really substantial increase. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, that, that makes a, a big difference there. Um, and then our hospitalizations, our 14-day rolling average, this one's going to be a better indication because there's going to be a lot of talk about Thanksgiving and the effect that Thanksgiving had on the coronavirus numbers. This gives us a pretty good indication looking at the 14-day average because, you know, Thanksgiving was last week. And so comparing this 14-day period, including last week, gives us a 14-day average of about 180. Our previous 14-day average for the last two weeks was about 162 when you're looking at the overall averages for the 14-day. So that is a increase of 18, which is by no means insignificant, but it's also not like the insane blowout that everybody was expecting. Now, keep in mind, Thanksgiving was Thursday of last week, which means we've really only had a week to see where this is going, and this virus has an incubation period of about two weeks which means that we're going to see a, a continuing increase in hospitalizations from this. But everybody was predicting that because you went to have dinner with your relatives and everybody was going to be in these gatherings uh, because they don't trust the average person to make some common sense precautions and to take responsibility for their own health. And because of that, they were expecting that the second that Thanksgiving was over, you were going to have a massive increase in hospitalizations, and we did see a pretty explosive increase in cases. But the increase in hospitalizations, 18 is not insignificant, but it's also not massive. And the thing that's important to note about that is usually there's a rolling sort of ripple effect. First, you see an increase in cases that takes place pretty quickly. And then after an event that may have caused an increase in cases, about a week after that, you see an increase in hospitalizations. But you just saw that we were looking at the two-week increase for hospitalizations, and it's really not that big a deal. It's really not been a substantial like explosion of hospitalizations that a lot of the people on the left especially were predicting. And so that does make a difference. Is, that, is it an increase? Yeah. Is it a gigantic increase that's going to cause the apocalypse and mean that we never get this virus under control ever again and our hospital uh, system is going to completely shut down? No, not even close. And so that's really the takeaway from those numbers. Now, let's go ahead and look at the statistics when it comes to the, the main statistic that matters more than anything, COVID deaths. The seven-day average for this week is 35. The previous seven-day average for last week... 14. 
So that is a pretty substantial increase. There is no denying that whatsoever. That is an increase of 21. But the thing is, that increase did not come from Thanksgiving. And the reason that I can say that with absolute confidence is because this thing does have an incubation period of about two weeks. And we've seen, I've been looking at these stats every day for the past six, seven months now. And I'm telling you, there's a very consistent pattern that when a big event happens and, and you see a big increase and a big spike in cases, which we have seen over the past month here in the state of Alabama, that right after that, you see an increase in deaths. Well, Thanksgiving was just a week ago. Deaths come two weeks after whatever spiking cases that you saw. So has there been a substantial increase in deaths? Absolutely. Is that something that we need to keep an eye on and, and you know do absolutely everything we can to prevent? Sure. But the idea that this thing was caused by Thanksgiving is simply not true. The media is going to try to spin this. The media is going to try to convince you that these increases in deaths are the result of Thanksgiving. No, there's an increase in deaths because there's an increase in cases. And the increase in cases came before Thanksgiving. And so that's one thing that it is important to be aware of when they try to do this narrative crafting kind of thing. So let's go ahead and look at the COVID deaths over the 28-day period. So the 28-day period we are currently in, our average is going to be 26. And remember, that rose substantially in the past week. And so uh, that 26 number is slightly inflated over last week, but that's, that's how drastic a difference was made. And in the previous 28 days before the mask mandate was put into place, 14.3. So here we are. We finally, in one of these updates, do have an increase of 11.7 over the last time that we did not have a mask mandate. But the thing is, and as I said, this is important to keep in mind, this thing has an incubation period of two weeks. It took us several months after the mask mandate was put into place uh, to, to see a, a big increase. And that's actually kind of funny because when we didn't have a, a mask mandate in place way back in the summer, back before this thing was implemented, we had significantly less deaths. And so they keep trying to tell us that put on a mask, save lives. No, actually, we're way worse off right now with a mask mandate in place than we were beforehand. I don't think the masks are causing that, obviously. But my point is that this idea that just Having a mask mandate saves lives. No, obviously it doesn't. And back before we had a mask mandate, we had substantially less deaths from this virus. I don't think that we're having more deaths because of the mask. I just think that they're completely ineffective and are not affecting whether or not that actually takes place. Look, there's no question that right now the virus is, is really bad. I, I, no, no person with a brain in their head would deny the fact that this is as bad as the virus has ever been. We've hit all kinds of new records, that kind of thing. But the question is not, is it worse than it, it has been in a while when it comes to things like cases? The question is, what is the correct response to that? Because there's an awful lot of people that the second they hear, oh, the virus is starting to get out of control, we've got to start locking everything down. Oh, okay, well, is that going to be effective? That's the question that needs to be asked here. And there are people like Kyle Whitmire at AL.com that are writing articles that suggest we do the exact opposite of what would actually be helpful or what would actually be 
productive when it comes to getting the virus under control. And when I say under control, I mean preventing deaths, not just uh, lowering numbers of stats that don't, at the end of the day, really matter. So let's go ahead and read this article from AL.com's Kyle Whitmire. So the headline is, Wait and see is over. Do something now, KIV. So as the headline suggests, he's basically calling upon KIV, whose mask mandates, uh, it expires, I believe, tomorrow, because I think December the 5th was the deadline on that. So it, it actually does expire, and then... Kyle Whitmire jumps in and says, I'm sorry, Governor Ivey, but it's time to talk about coronavirus restrictions again. No one wants them. Heck, no one even wants to talk about them, but it's time. Just look at the numbers. On May 13th, Alabama posted 349 new cases. That was the day you first relaxed restrictions that had kept the restaurants, gyms, and salons closed. On Tuesday, Alabama reported nearly 10 times that number of cases, 3,376. Yes, those cases include some backlog tests from the Thanksgiving holiday, but the numbers are still bad. Okay, so I, first of all, I love that he includes this statistic and then acknowledges that it's a bad number. See, saying that this is how many cases that we posted on this one particular day, even though we know for a fact that there were multiple tests that just got recorded on that day and got reported, it wasn't that they all happened in one day. It's just I have to find the biggest, scariest number I possibly can. So he admits that it's a bad stat. He admits it's one that you shouldn't be going by, but then proceeds to use it and cite it as a rationale for why Governor Ivey needs to do what he says. It's, it's so ridiculous because here's the thing. The 14-day average, the real 14-day average for what we're in right now when it comes to cases is 2,308 a day. Now, that is still significantly more than the 349 cases that were posted on the day that Governor Ivey relaxed the restrictions and, and opened the state back up, but it's not 10 times as much. That's a thousand less than the number that he just cited because what they did was a lot of the tests got backlogged and they all got reported on the same day. Kyle Whitmire knows that. He admits it in the article, but hey, it fits my narrative and it sensationalizes my point. Ergo, I'm going to use it even though I know it's a garbage stat. Because to Kyle Whitmire and other people in the media that have this weird shutdown fetish, that's really all that matters. As long as they can convince people that they ought to be terrified, they feel like they've done their job. And if they have to use bad stats to use it, then by gum, that's what they're going to do. And Kyle Whitmire straight up admits this in his article. Furthermore, using the day after the shutdown, that's an incredibly stupid metric to use anyway. Like, it would be one thing if he just arbitrarily picked some random date and compared it to right now. But he specifically used one after the shutdown. Now, shutdowns do cause a decrease in cases. Now, overall, they don't. Like, if you're looking at the amount of cases of a country like Sweden, who had virtually no shutdowns, versus a country like Germany that shut down really hard, you'll notice that the cases as a percentage of their population is pretty close to the same. And so the only difference is that Germany's was spread out over a longer period of time. You know, Sweden got hit really hard, really fast, and then everything calmed down because a whole bunch of their people got it essentially all at once. But if you're looking at the overall cases, the shutdowns are not an effective measure for lowering the total amount of people that get the virus and never have been. 
In fact, even back when the shutdowns were being touted as being a, a really smart policy, nobody ever suggested that this was going to keep people from getting the virus. All they suggested is it is going to flatten the curve and slow everything down to allow the system to absorb the burden that these cases are going to cause. And so citing the stats the day after a shutdown, in other words, after you've had everybody shut down and not able to come out of their house and that kind of thing, that's kind of like citing if you were to make this analogous to cancer. That would be like, if you looked at your numbers right after your final day of chemo. Uh, well, of course your tumor markers are going to be down after you just took your final day of chemo, but that's not a good comparison to tell whether or not they're normal or not. What you should be looking at and comparing is an average day, one that you haven't just gone through chemo on. And so this is a really bad rubric, but the reason that Kyle Whitmire puts it out there is because he takes a garbage stat that's going to be inflated and he knows is inflated and admits it and then takes another stat that he knows is going to be super low and one that he can say, look how we are doing compared to that. Oh, okay, but that's not really a good measure. Why don't we measure sometime later? Why don't we measure sometime, you know, like two weeks after the state opened up, something like that, because, uh, you know, that would be a much better measure of what's going on here. Then he continues on in the same article. As of Tuesday, 1,785 people were hospitalized with the virus. That's more than three times as many that were hospitalized when you began lifting restrictions. Some hospitals have already run out of ICU beds, and even if they rustle up some more, they can't magically hire more staff to tend them. Okay, there's a couple of reasons why this is incredibly dumb. First of all, you may recall that the stat that he is citing here, it goes all the way back to May. He's saying that this is because that would have been the time that the shutdown officially ended and KIV loosened the restrictions on the state. The problem with using that is, since then, we have changed how we measure hospitalizations. Completely changed it. And the numbers are way higher now than they were back then. Now, you could argue maybe whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to how we're recording it. Maybe we were missing some under the old system that we're seeing now. You know, that's a perfectly fine discussion to have, but regardless of where you fall on that discussion, we're measuring it different now, and we're reporting it different now. And because of that, there is absolutely no way you can compare that stat to this stat. It would be like saying, for example, a 20 centimeter long piece of wood is longer than a 10 inch piece of wood because 20 is higher than 10. The only problem with that is, you're measuring one in centimeters, you're measuring the other in inches, and a 10-inch piece of wood is actually longer than a 20-centimeter piece of wood. You see, you can't just throw two completely different systems of measurement together and say, oh, the higher one must be significantly uh, longer or bigger or however you're measuring that. And so you're using two completely different systems of measurement here, yet you're comparing. It's like, well, it's, it's three times the amount of hospitalizations under the old, uh, under the... Uh, that we're having now as opposed to May, but we were using a completely different system that measured it in smaller increments then. And so Kyle Whitmire is either completely ignorant that this change took place on July the 10th and the Alabama Department of Public Health announced it. Maybe he just forgot about that and just looked at the raw numbers and it was a oops. 
But considering that Kyle Whitmire has already openly admitted to, in this same article, using garbage statistics as long as it makes his case stronger, I kind of doubt that he is just ignorant of this and just wanted to use a number that makes his case look stronger than it actually is. But, you know, that really should come as no surprise to anybody that's familiar with Whitmire's work. And then another piece of this article, our percent positive rates have risen above 25% in parentheses, anything above five is bad, which means we're missing positive cases. Um, not necessarily. We might. It's possible. If our, percent po uh, if our percentage positive is higher, then what that means is we are testing a lower percentage of the overall population. Why is that? Because it's important to ask why. Well, there are several reasons. One could be that more people have had the virus now and therefore are not getting the virus. And because we've had that big spike and there's a whole bunch of people we have in the state living already that survived the virus and have no chance of getting it from now on, or at least at any time in the near future, then that means that there's no reason for them to get tested again. Ergo, we are test we're not testing those same people over and over. And so that's part of it. But another one is a lot of these people that we're missing are asymptomatic and very unlikely to, tr to transmit it anyway. Remember, originally we were really scared about this thing because we're like, yeah, it doesn't really manifest until about three or four days after you have the virus. And at that point, you could have spread it to all kinds of people, except we found out that asymptomatic people tend to not spread the virus. That if you're completely asymptomatic, that you're not feeling sick in any way, that Normally speaking, that's not a person that transmits. Asymptomatic transmission is still possible, but it's very unlikely. And this has been proven the more familiar we've gotten to this virus and the more we've studied it. And so the fact that we're missing a whole bunch of asymptomatic people or people that have incredibly mild symptoms is really not that big a deal. And the reason our percent positive rate is going up, it means more people that don't have the virus just aren't getting tested. And there's a number of reasons that that could be the case. He sort of arbitrarily just says, well, anything above five is bad. Uh, okay, why? Explain yourself. I mean, maybe you have a point, but you got to show your work on that. You can't just say something like that and then expect everybody to fall in line and believe you. And this is the final piece of this particular article we'll read. Whitmire says, if you don't put in place immediate, uh, immediate mitigation measures now, you won't have to worry about shutting down the state. Eventually, it will shut itself down. Yeah, that's the argument I've been making since day one. Good job, Kyle Whitmire. You just figured out libertarianism 101. That's the point. You see, what we learned from this virus when the first wave of shutdown started is that most people were quarantining for days or weeks before their state officially shut down. You can look at data when it came to people traveling. You can look at self-reported data. Uh, you can look at the data of cell phones and, and GPSs. The New York Times actually did this, where they were tracking whether or not people were moving around and how much people were driving, that kind of thing. And what they found is that every single state, all 50 of them, every single one saw a significant dip in travel about a week and a half before their state shut down. Why? Because the numbers started getting worse and people started quarantining themselves. 
This is the difference in somebody like me and somebody like Kyle Whitmire. See, I believe that people will make decisions in their own self-interest. That if they know that the virus is, is getting worse and it may be something that is a problem, they will self-quarantine. And if they don't, then they're not going to. You see, that's the problem with all these government mandates. I don't have a problem with somebody who's like, you know what, I'm kind of vulnerable, or you know what, I'm not vulnerable, but somebody that I live with is. I live with my, my dad or my granddad, and because of that, I'm just going to be a little extra cautious, and since I can work from home, that's fine. I got no problem with that. What I have a problem with is somebody in the government telling a small business that they're not allowed to open their doors even if it starves their family because the state is shut down. That's what I have a problem with. If they want to shut down or they want to, you know, take some extra precautions, okay, that's fine. The state mandating it is not correct. And Kyle Whitmire kind of inadvertently actually makes a really good point, which is if you don't shut it down, the state is going to shut down itself. Yeah, because people act in their own self-interest. And if they want to shut down, that should be their decision, not the governor's. That's the point I've been making since day one. And somehow Kyle Whitmire thinks that this is a point in his favor. That, well, if you don't shut it down now, it's going to shut down anyway. Okay, then let the people shut it down. That's fine. This is America. That's the way it's supposed to go anyway. The government follows us. We don't follow the government. Like I was saying, the travel data, you remember we were having this discussion about how they actually showed that travel dropped off substantially. And I'm not even talking about like air travel. I'm talking about just going back and forth in your car. People did quarantine by themselves without a governor telling them that they had to. And you know what else? The governors started opening up about a week or week and a half after people pretty much got back to traveling the way that they had beforehand. The government follows us. We don't follow it. This is America. This is the one place that is based off of the idea that we're the one that leads the government, not the other way around. And Whitmire would rather have the governor force us to shut down because he thinks it's what's best. Ultimately, that's the problem here, is that Whitmire thinks he and everybody else is so much smarter and can make so much better decisions. Look, if Whitmire wants to brick himself off in his basement and work from there for the rest of his career... That's no skin off my hide. I don't care. But don't tell other people that they're not allowed to work and they're not allowed to bring in income just because it's something that doesn't suit you. I mean, that's the whole idea of freedom, isn't it? That you get to make your own decisions and other people get to make their own decisions. And at the end of the day, you respect that. That's what liberty looks like. Furthermore, and this is the thing that is really irritating about this. Now, I know we didn't read the entire article, but believe me, I wouldn't be saying this if it hadn't been excluded from Kyle Whitmire's consideration here. Did you notice anything about the stats? The stats that he chose, the ones that we were reading? You notice anything about those? Anybody? He included deaths, and even though he horribly botched it, Included hospitalizations as well. You know what stat he didn't include? Deaths. Why would he not include deaths? Isn't that the most important one? Isn't if, if the whole purpose of this and the whole purpose of shutdowns is to save lives, why would he not include deaths? 
See, because he only included stats that he thought would help him make his case. If you focus on cases, it looks really bad. If you look at deaths, it turns out we're really not in bad shape. So that's one of the things that is, is a big deal here. So first of all, let's go back to why he would have wanted to choose cases. Why is there such a substantial uptick in cases? Well, there's a number of different factors. One thing is that just more people are getting sick and more people have the virus. That is certainly true. But another thing that is probably a significant contributing factor is testing. We're testing way more than we did back when Kyle Whitmire is trying to compare us to back in the end of May. So let's go ahead and, and compare and look at our testing that we were doing now and, and that we were doing then. So this is the 28-day average daily test from April the 23rd to May the 21st. So this would have been the last month of the shutdown because remember, Kyle Whitmire is the one that set the bar there. That's where he chose to compare us to. And because of that, I'm going to use that same measurement. 5,002. That was how many people we were testing on a daily basis on average in that month. Now, let's look at our average daily test for this month. 8,459. That is an increase of 3,457, or 69% more than we were testing at the time. Okay, well, that does make a pretty substantial difference, doesn't it? If we're testing a lot more people, yeah, the cases are going to be a lot higher. I know this may be difficult for Kyle Whitmire to understand, but that is the way that this works. Is it the only factor? No, I genuinely do believe that there are also more people that have the virus and we're having more positive cases because more people do have it. I'm not saying that's not the case, but I'm saying if you increase your testing by 69%, that's going to have a substantial ramification for the final number. And so that accounts for at least part of it. That accounts for at least some of the case increase that we're seeing because our testing is significantly more robust and easier than it was at the time that he's trying to compare us to. Now, let's go ahead and look at this stat as well when we actually look at the deaths, because the risk of death is way, way lower for this thing than the date in which Kyle Whitmire is trying to compare to. So let's look at the 28-day average of deaths for uh, the 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 time period in which Kyle Whitmire is trying to measure. So if you're looking at before the day that he is looking at, so the month, the last month of the shutdown, you get 11.9 deaths. But if you look at the month after the shutdown, uh, that's going to give you a different measure. So we'll look at that in a second. Um, if you look at the 28 daily deaths for right now, 26.8. Okay, well, that seems to be a point in Kyle Whitmire's favor, doesn't it? I mean, 26 is obviously significantly more deaths per day than back when the shutdown ended. Oh, wait, but there was also a month after the shutdown. So directly after the shutdown, which he seems to not have any contention or at least doesn't voice it in this article with Kay Ivey about not maintaining a shutdown. Now, maybe he did at the time. Uh, yeah. So back in the month after the shutdown, so late May and early June, 28.6. And so we were actually seeing more deaths on average back in the summer right after the shutdowns ended. See, Kyle Whitmire doesn't want to talk about that. 
our deaths have actually decreased despite the fact that we've got way more cases now than we did at the time. That's the thing that people on the left that are crying we need to go ahead and shut down are completely ignoring. Our treatment of this thing has gotten significantly better through things like therapeutics and just through knowledge. I mean, the idea that this is a newer treatment uh, that, that came out after that time period that we're talking about, just learning that it may help to roll a patient over on their belly so that they can breathe a little easier. I mean, things as simple as that have greatly increased our ability to treat this thing without it becoming fatal. And so because of that, even with a substantial increase in cases, our deaths look really pretty much the same as they did in June when we keep hearing about this big lull that was happening, which, by the way, it was. I'm not arguing with that. Uh, but when we, we talk about, oh, back in the summer, and then they try to compare it like Kyle Whitmire did, they're comparing cases but not deaths because we were having more deaths then even though we had substantially less people with the virus at that time. And when it comes to that and when we're talking about a risk assessment kind of uh, standard for this, let's look at the fatality rate. So the average fatality rate for the same time period that Kyle Whitmire is measuring, the last month of the shutdown that ended on May 21st, it was 0.45 if you adjust for the CDC's estimate. Now, the CDC estimate is going to be a, a, a factor of 10, or it was back then. Now it's actually probably a little bit less, but we're going to use the same rubric just because it, it actually works in Kyle Whitmire's favor. And so... I'm going to use the same standard. I'm going to adjust it exactly the same way, even though the truth is the numbers would actually look a little bit better on our side if we measured more uh, for, if we adjusted that measurement just a little bit. So this is the fatality rate for this month, November through December, 0.13. That's a decrease of 0.32%. In other words, when the the last month of the shutdown was taking place, the time that Kyle Whitmire is trying to call back to and say, oh, we were in so much better shape back then, and look how horrible the shape we're in now is. Yeah, actually, the fatality rate was 3.5 times larger then than it is now. So good job, Kyle Whitmire. Again, he doesn't want to talk about this. He doesn't want to talk about deaths. He doesn't want to talk about fatality because the second that you do, you realize, oh, actually, we're really not in any danger or at least not significantly more danger than we were at the time period he's trying to compare us to. See, that's the folly of central planning. They really do believe that if we just hit the right combination of shutdown and masking and all these things, that we'll just have no deaths, that it'll all go away. That's not realistic. It's not possible. And the reason that I know that is because you can look all over the world and get a similar result. So there has been no data whatsoever so far that suggests that the shutdowns actually do decrease the net number of cases or deaths. It can slow them down, it can flatten the curve, but it can actually cause less people to get sick and less people to die from that sickness. That has been shown over and over and over again. Right now, spikes are happening everywhere, even the places that are shut down. A lot of European countries, including the UK and Germany, are locked down really tight and have been for a while. California never fully reopened, and they're seeing a spike too, just like Germany, just like the UK. Of all places, I frankly didn't think this was going to happen, but even New York is seeing another spike. 
even though they're locked down really tight. We're seeing spikes in Michigan. We're seeing spikes all over the world. Whether you have a shutdown or not doesn't seem to affect whether or not you're going to have a spike. Now, again, maybe it can make that spike last longer and just be less intense, but it's still going to result in the same amount of people, and the spike is still going to happen one way or the other. Right now, in New York and Illinois, and this is why it's important to compare deaths as well as case rates, right now in New York and Illinois, both of those states are seeing a substantial increase in total deaths. You know what place is actually continuing a steady decline in death rate? Florida, which is wide open and has not reenacted any shutdown measures. Now, maybe that changes in, you know, some time from now. But the point is, we've been in this spike for about two, two or three weeks. And despite that, you've got some states that are open that are not seeing increases in death rate and some states that are shut down that are, are seeing an increase in death rate. The shutdowns do not have an effect on this. None of the data suggests that that is the case. And even the, even the WHO, the World Health Organization, they came out about a month, month and a half ago and said, look, these shutdown measures, they are stalling tactics. They are not a measure to control the virus because you can't control the virus. That's not possible. And they actually said, quit thinking of the shutdowns as a control mechanism because that's not what it does. If you do have a situation, and remember, this is the narrative that we were originally told back when all this started, if you do have a problem with not having enough preparation, not having enough medical staff, or not having the medical resources and facilities to handle a giant spike in cases, then yes, a shutdown may very well be in order in order to try to, and I'm not even talking about a government-mandated shutdown, I'm just talking about people being cautious, but that may be in order if you need to slow the, the amount of time so the system can kind of absorb it over a longer period of time. The problem with that is that there's been no indication whatsoever that that's a problem this time. Whitmire's basically just saying, increase in cases, therefore we need another shutdown. And he does mention hospitals, but he uses garbage stats and doesn't explain that. Now, if Kyle Whitmire can come to me and say, look, and, and not use anecdotal evidence and say, well, there may have been some hospitals that ran out of ICU beds. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. Come to me with actual math and actual data and say, look, this is Alabama's overall ICU capacity. This is where we are. This is where we're projected to be. And where we're projected to be exceeds where we will have to be. And so that's why we need to flatten the curve and enact another shutdown. Then I'm open to listening, but he hasn't done that. He's basically just said, oh, increase in cases, therefore we need another shutdown. No, you're going to have to do that, and then you're also going to have to explain to me that the risk, the, you're going to have to do a risk versus reward analysis and explain to me that the shutdown is going to be less costly than the price of, of whatever price we're going to have to pay when it comes to doing the shutdown. You can't just make these claims and suggest that because we've seen an increase in cases that that's enough and that means we have to shut everything down. That's simply not how this works. But ultimately, this is the problem. Whitmire's shutdown fetish does not originate from feelings. 
or sorry, it does not originate from facts. It originates from feelings. He feels as though this is the right thing to do. Therefore, he believes that it is correct. Because if you were looking at the facts and looking at the data, the data does not support his conclusion. It's just as simple as that. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back in a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. All right, gang, it's time for another cookie review from insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. Now, if you happen to be in Mobile or Birmingham or Auburn or Tuscaloosa, you know, good for you. That means that there is an Insomnia Cookies store in your city. So you can just go by there, get a fresh baked cookie from them. That's great. But the thing is, I'm not in one of those cities. So what I have to do is I have to go to insomniacookies.com, get a box just like this delivered to my door filled with delicious cookies. So, I mean, America is the greatest country in the world. Cookies delivered right to your door. You can't beat that. So if you are interested in that, of course, go to insomniacookies.com. Now, our cookie review for today is the oatmeal raisin. And I'm going to be honest with you. Everybody has likes and dislikes. Everybody has their favorites. I told Insomnia Cookies I would give them an honest review of each of their cookies, and they said they were cool with it. That's how confident they are that their cookies are the best, is that they knew that if I was going to give an honest review, they felt like they would come out on top with that. But this one's going to be a challenge, because I do not like the oatmeal raisin. Now, I think part of it may be that, quite frankly, most of the time when I pick up an oatmeal raisin, I'm expecting a chocolate chip cookie. Now, there's no mistaking an Insomnia Cookies chocolate chip cookie from the oatmeal raisin cookie. You can see the oatmeal raisin here. If you've seen my review of the chocolate chip cookie, they actually call it the chocolate chunk because there's just giant gobs of chocolate in it, which are fantastic. So you're not going to mistake this one for a chocolate chip cookie. And so the fact that I'm not going to get a surprise thinking I'm getting a chocolate chip cookie instead of getting an oatmeal raisin, that might help with it a little bit. But also the fact that it's an insomnia cookies oatmeal raisin. If they can impress me with an oatmeal raisin cookie, then you know insomniacookies.com is the real deal because I'm just not a fan of this particular flavor of cookie. So let's try it out. Hmm. You know, it's not nearly as good as the other cookies from insomniacookies.com, just to be perfectly honest. Now, if you love oatmeal raisin cookies, I have a feeling you're really going to like this cookie. Because I can't stand oatmeal raisin cookies. And this one's okay. And I actually like the oatmeal part of it. It's the raisins that I tend to not like. But even as a person that doesn't like the raisins, I can definitely taste the raisins. But it's not overpowering. It's a very balanced flavor. And the raisins that are in there, they taste better than the raisins that are usually in oatmeal raisin cookies. I don't know. It's like they're fresher or something. I don't know if maybe their supplier gets fresher raisins. I'm not really sure. That seems odd to compliment on a dehydrated fruit like a raisin. But, I mean, I still really want to take another bite of it. There's a little bit of cinnamon in there, which I think really helps it. And definitely taste some cinnamon. I think it's it's kind of similar to their snickerdoodle, but it also has the oat, oats in it that you can really taste. And so that's really interesting. Of all the cookies I've tried, 
like I said, going to be an honest review. This is probably my least favorite. But I still want to keep eating it. Now, that is a testament to how good Insomnia Cookies is, is that I usually spit out and want nothing to do with the Noteboy Raisin Cookie. And this one, I'm not enjoying it nearly as much as the peanut butter cup or the chip mint or the double chocolate. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not enjoying it nearly as much as I would those. But I'm still liking the cookie, which is frankly pretty surprising. So if you actually like oatmeal raisin cookies, I have a feeling you're going to love this oatmeal raisin cookie. And if you do want to get one, the place to do that, insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and newsradio1440.com. And welcome back to the program, everybody. Thank you so much for continuing to be with us here on Tactics. Make sure you remember to like and subscribe because that is how we fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube by liking and subscribing. So thank you so much for doing that. My next guest is somebody that's actually been on the program quite a lot. We used to have a weekly segment, which frankly, I really miss. It was called Upon Further Review, where we did sort of the, the uh, intersection of sports and politics. He has been on uh, one of our sister stations, Sports Radio 740, and now is on ESPN 97.7 out of Huntsville, the host of The Zone. We welcome back to the program, Joe Hunk. Thank you so much for being with us, Joe. How's it going, man? Man, it's good to see you. And uh, I'm not your employee anymore, so I can say what I want. No. Yeah, no, I mean, you can absolutely say what you want. I don't really care. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the good thing about, about being up here in Huntsville is I just get to be a host and get to be creative and get to do social media stuff and all the stuff that, that I was doing in Montgomery, I just get to solely do. In fact, as we're speaking right now, my program director is sitting directly across from me. So uh, it's, it's, it's good to not have to be the, the final voice on a lot of things and I can just <laughs> do whatever I want to do. So I'm liking it. Well, I, yeah, you're kind of seeing things from my perspective at this point, but yeah, I do appreciate it. And uh, to be honest, I always said what I wanted anyway. You never like no and well well because again you know you know with you guys being news talking with you doing news man i mean you saying what you want is what you want i don't you never want cookie cutter people to be saying cookie cutter things so if you're going to be opinionated you're going to be unique but you're also going to have facts behind it say what you want to say man i mean that's that's the whole genius of this if i'm going to go on the air and i'm going to talk about something like you know alabama or auburn doing x y and z it, as long as i have information and numbers to back it up sorry i'm yeah. i'm going to say it because i actually believe it now if i'm just pulling something out of my butt because i want to get a reaction you know like some people in the media do then okay you can get on to me for it but i'm not trying to be a shock jock if i have information and i have an angle that i see is a different way of thinking then absolutely let's go with it let's have fun with it oh for sure and that's one of the things i love about radio it is a bastion or at least always has been thought of this this way and i think that it's mostly still correct a, a bastion of free speech but let's get no, into it is. let's let's get into the story that I wanted to talk to you about. I'm sure that you know about it. Vanderbilt, they brought in a female kicker. So what happened is they had a couple of their kickers, which I mean is understandable. They're working out with one another every day. They're they're with each other every day. One of them got the virus, and then they both got the virus, and so they didn't have a kicker left. So they brought went to the women's soccer team, 
and ask Sarah Fuller, which uh, Vanderbilt has a really good women's soccer program. They asked her to come on and dress, and she was the first woman to play in a Power 5 conference college football game. And it got uh, all kinds of praise from people in the media and all this adulation. This is just one example. We could go through several, but this is just one example of it. This is a tweet from Hillary Clinton that you can see here. Uh, where it says, thank you, Sarah, for helping to prove that women and girls belong on every playing field, quite literally. But I think the thing that really kind of, I, I mean, for me, the reason that I think that w where we made a mistake is not that Sarah was on the field, because, you know, the coaches asked her to come on the field, and she did what was good for her school and said, sure, I'll do it, and I don't have any problem with her. My problem with the whole thing is, just like Hillary Clinton was saying, that this like proves that women are the same as men or whatever. She kicked a 20-yard squib kick that rolled for another 10. And we're supposed to, it's the only time she was on the field, and she didn't even cover. The second she kicked the ball, she was already running off the field. <laughs> so I just, my issue is not in her playing or anything. I don't have a problem with that. My problem is we're acting like this is a massive triumph for women and proves that women are equal to men in athleticism. And I just don't think that's the correct read of what happened Saturday. Well, and you've got, there's a lot of layers to what happened on Saturday. And I think that that is where we kind of need to have the discussion to begin with. Um, should women be involved in, in football if they can do it? Absolutely. They should sure. be able to be, be involved in it. We have, uh, there are women football leagues uh, around the country where women play football. And if there is a woman that is good enough to play, absolutely. I've seen a lot of these women play and some of them have better work ethics, have better mm -hmm. uh, regimens, workout regimens, better dietary regimens than any guy and that, that I've ever seen. And, and so those women absolutely should. We, we see a lot about the first female in, in the NFL and the, the lady that coaches for the, the NFL mm -hmm. and, and for the San Francisco 49ers. She's actually from Kansas City, Missouri, and she plays in a, a professional football league for women, and she is a beast. And so, you know, there's a lot of women that can play, but, you know, you have to earn it. You have to deserve it. And look, she just won the SEC championship for, for Vanderbilt football. She is a woman that is a very, very good goalie in college, uh, college soccer. And honestly, there may be an opportunity for her in the future to play for the U S women's national team. And if that is the case, have at it, because if you're that good, do it. Is she, you know, the, the comparison she gets compared to was the, the movie back in, you know, necessary roughness with Kathy oh, yeah. Ireland yeah, and, and the, she's not Kathy Ireland. She doesn't weigh 96 pounds and you know, all that. No, this girl had the body of somebody that could take a lick. I mean, if you see some of her highlights, she can take a hit. Now, mm -hmm. the part about this that has become, I don't want to say a laughing, you know, kind of being laughed at is that there are stories, there are uh, backstories, I should say, that are coming out uh, now from beat writers and people that are in the know with Vanderbilt. And, you know, for what she did, I really wanted her to get in. Uh, the problem was, and if you saw her warm up on Saturday, uh, SEC Nation was doing like a live feed of her warming up. Mm -hmm. And every single one of her kicks were coming off her foot low. 
And in soccer, that's fine because when you hit, when you kick a soccer ball, it starts low and it, it eventually goes up. But for a football, you don't want that to happen. And mm-hmm. so she was kicking like a soccer kicker would kick a soccer ball, not like a football player would kick a football and like a kicker, a putter would. I honestly feared that if she were to have gotten in the game in a field goal situation for Vanderbilt, that the kick would have came off low and it would have got blocked. That's that's from yeah. what I watched and warmups on it. And so I started right, seeing which would that be on a Saturday. concern, even if it were a male soccer player. Oh, that came, absolutely. Because they're used to kicking a soccer ball. Absolutely. And the way that you kick one is you do, you start it off low and it goes and it starts and it elevates. It's kind of like, you'll see it a lot of times with uh, a golf ball or something along those lines. The trajectory is just a little bit different, mm-hmm. but you know, and, and we've seen stories of men that have tried to, to kick footballs and it just doesn't work out. It's because again, low trajectory, they're hitting their lineman in the back. They're hitting them in the helmet They're You know, the, if the ball is getting off their foot and, and missing the offensive line, it's going directly into the defensive lines hands like that. That is a soccer problem. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I was a little kid, 13, 14 years old, my dad got me a golf set for, for Christmas. And the first time that I actually went out and, and played 18 holes, I've got the, the video of me, swinging the golf club for the very first time i swung the golf club like a baseball player it's funny because i'm you because know, I, I was a baseball, baseball player too and that's yeah. exactly my problem when i try to play golf i swing like a baseball yeah. bat exactly and so for me that that was my problem and i had to learn a golf swing heck i'm still trying to learn a golf swing <laughs> but I'm, i tried to i had to learn a golf swing mm. that was different from my baseball swing and so when i approached the golf ball i had to not think like a baseball player i had to think like a golfer and so with her that was my biggest fear what we've learned over the course of the last four five and six days is that there are reasons why she was kicking the ball like a soccer player, not because she is one, but because she never really even had the opportunity to practice. Mm-hmm. Like every time that she uh, allegedly from the, from the beat writers and stuff that we've talked to at Vanderbilt, she apparently was going out and doing Vanderbilt was sending her off to photo shoots and they were sending her off to, to PR uh, availabilities and they were sending her off to interviews and all this other stuff. So when she would try to go to practice and kick, she really never had the opportunity to because Vanderbilt was sending her other places because they knew what would happen the moment that the story got out and they were prepared. Their PR department and their marketing department was prepared for this. So she only got maybe one practice, maybe two practices through the week for her to actually, you know, work with the special teams and work with trying to get mm-hmm. the kicks off. That's a problem because Vanderbilt is looking like at this point in time, Like this was a 100% publicity stunt and it was, you know, not want to say Derek Mason specifically because I personally love Derek Mason as a guy and as a person, but Derek Mason was on the hot seat and maybe this was a plan that either him, the athletic director, somebody came up with. This is just me spitballing that, you know, we do this, we do what we, you know, we get her out of the field, we dress her out, we have her play in the game and the good publicity from this would help me keep my job. That's the thought process that I have. Spoiler of, of alert, didn't work. No, no, it didn't work at all. Cause when you get just drummed, like the way that they did uh, against Missouri and you don't even score a point. Yeah. The next day he gets fired. 
And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's some question marks with this. And so I want to see what happens this weekend because she's still on the roster. She's still the only kicker on the depth chart. Are they going to get in the end zone for her to potentially kick a field goal? And hopefully over the course of the next of the last five and six days getting ready for this game, she's actually had the opportunity to work with the special teams coordinator, the, the, which will help her with her kicking. And she can learn how to be a kicker, not a soccer player. And if she does then okay, that's a different ball game going into Saturday, mm-hmm. but last Saturday, that looked 100% like a publicity stunt. Well, and that was one thing, because you started with this, and I think it was a good place to start because it's a sentiment I share. Joe, one of the things that I love about sports is it's a meritocracy, which is, frankly, not that dissimilar to my political stance on things. It should be based on merit. If she goes out Saturday and nails a 35-yard field goal, I mean, I'll be the first person to stand up and applaud. Yeah, well, it is. You can do it, then great. But based on everything we've seen so far and what you were talking about, it seems as though she was not put into the game because they believed she had the potential to do that. She was put in the game because she was a girl and that was going to give them good publicity. I mean, they also have a male soccer team and didn't go to them to ask if they had anybody that they could use. And like you said, the whole thing was basically a week long press gaggle for her. Well, so and, this is the problem. And, well, and okay, so the, the biggest problem with this, and, and there's other problems that they go along with this, mm-hmm. is if I'm if I'm somebody that is watching right now and I am a beat writer and, and I am like a, a a writer that that does like an opinion piece or maybe does these deep dive pieces, I want to talk to her. I want to know because after the game. She was amazing on the microphone. She was, you know, your dreams can come true if you work hard enough, you know, all this other stuff, which is 100% true. If you work your tail off, there will be opportunities in your life that pop up that you had no idea was was even in the plans. Mm. But was this a dream come true for her? Other than the idea of, of breaking the glass ceiling of women being able to play college football, was this a dream? Did she look at her dad or her mom when she was four years old and said, I want to play football. I want to kick. And somebody says, you can't do that. You're a girl. And she said, no, I'm eventually going to want to do this. Was that story? There is that story there. If it is college game day, get it. CNN, Fox, one of these places, get it. Let us know this story. Teach us about mm-hmm. this because to me, this looks like she was a person chosen and she's going to be the representative of this i've heard people that have said jackie robinson this is the jackie robinson of of women's sports for her to do this time out no jackie robinson was one of the greatest negro league baseball players of all time he was selected by the loss or the brooklyn dodgers at the time Mm -hmm. but because of his poise for his ability to withstand the pressure and his ability to also perform on this stage. And he became an NL MVP. He became a world champion mm-hmm. and he became a major league baseball hall of famer because he was so good that they could not overlook him. 
The equivalent of that, if you were a female, would be a female playing quarterback in the college football level or the NFL level and turning around and becoming the NL, the, the MVP of the National Football League or the Offensive Player of the Year because you were so good. Not because, and your stats are so good that nobody can ignore you. Mm-hmm. You don't become the special teams player of the week for the SEC just because you were a female that came out there. And right. that's and, what exactly what happened. And, and that's what irritates me about it. You know, it's so funny that you brought up Jackie Robinson. Uh, I was actually reading, and this happened earlier this year. You're not a political guy, so you probably didn't know about this. There was an argument made in the book White Fragility, which is like basically it's trying to make the case for why affirmative action is a good policy. It brings up Jackie Robinson and and basically said that uh, Jackie Robinson was he was put on the Dodgers just because he was a black person and he couldn't really make it in the majors. I'm like, no baseball fan believes that. Regardless no. of color of skin, regardless of political affiliation, there's not a baseball player in or not a baseball fan in the world that believes that Jackie Robinson was not allowed in the major leagues because he wasn't a good enough player. Well, and no, that's, because that's the difference here. Well, Jackie th- that Robinson, is the difference. Sorry, Jackie Robinson, they put him in there because, like you said, he was so good they couldn't deny it anymore. And then the reverse is going on here where it seems as though. Sarah Fuller was only put into the game because she was a girl and Vandy wanted the publicity from it. Look, Jackie Robinson in his very first season with the Brooklyn Dodgers had 29 stolen bases. He mm-hmm. was the rookie of the year. He had 12 home runs. He almost batted 300 and he batted 297. He was the, the MVP of the league three years later. They don't just hand that to you because they wanted to, because Unlike 2020, where we really want to be accepting of of everybody, and and I think it's an amazing message because, yes, all lives matter, black lives matter, gender does not matter. I believe that. But numbers do not lie. And in the 1940s, when Jackie Robinson was coming into Major League Baseball and the Brooklyn Dodgers, unlike 2020, they did not want him. There was nobody, and again, if you were to say this in 2020, you would be blackballed from every sort of media outlet that there is if you were to say, I do not want Sarah Fuller or any other female to play the in college football because this is a man's game. If anybody were to have said that, mm-hmm. they would automatically have been fired from their publication, blackballed from all media availabilities, never allowed back into a press box, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. You had people tweeting, oh, this is so amazing. You had celebrities and, and, and athletes and all this that were celebrating the fact that she was doing this, which it should be celebrated. But what I'm saying is it's totally different because she wasn't walking out of her locker room on Saturday, afraid that somebody was going to grab her, kidnap her and hang her Mm. somewhere throughout the university, just to use it as a message that no other female should try this. That's what Jackie Robinson was dealing with. And that's the thing. I I have no problem whatsoever giving her accolades for a job well done. Once we actually see her do a good job. Once that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with it. Look, if she kicks a field goal this weekend, I'm yeah. absolutely going to cheer it. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm going to retweet yeah. and be like, this right. is so awesome. Like, I'm going to be 100% supportive of this. But 
She has got to earn it. She absolutely has to. Every single bit of it. Jackie Robinson learned, earned everything. His teammates didn't want him in spring training. His teammates, once he actually made the team, didn't want him in the regular season. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, as everything was starting to shake out, then they started to accept him. Then Major League Baseball didn't truly want him involved. And then this guy was so good that he had to be named Rookie of the Year, which they did not want to name him Rookie of the Year. Mm -hmm. He was so good three years later that he was named the MVP of the league. You don't just hand that out to anybody. Any Braves fan knows how hard it is for Freddie Freeman to become the NL MVP the way that he did this year. Mm -hmm. It's totally different. Well, one hundred percent, and and that is a this is just a synopsis of what you were saying. But that's the difference: is Jackie Robinson was working against a system that was trying to kick him out. Sarah yes. Fuller had a place made for her specifically that she was allowed in. That's the difference. It's the complete opposite. But I wanted to address one other aspect of this story, Joe, because I know that uh, I played a little sports, but not nearly to the degree to, to the degree that you did at the high school and collegiate level. And and you know more about this stuff than I do. Uh, apparently, Sarah did make a speech at halftime, and the. I read the whole thing. We don't have time to do that here on the show. Uh, But basically what it boiled down to is she got up on a stump at halftime and was talking about how terrible it is that this team uh, isn't being enthusiastic enough about one another and they're not encouraging one another the way that the girls' soccer team does. To which my response was, yes, because they're not girls. Because if you've ever been to a women's sporting event, the teammates are constantly like standing up and cheering for one another. Like I've gone to several Auburn softball games and the entire game, all nine innings and, and more if, if they go into extra, the entire team is like lined up on the edge of the dugout, cheering for one another, that kind of thing, which is fine because that's how girls interact with one another. Men don't do that. And if a it, take gender out of it for a second, if any guy who was from a different sports team, has only been to two practices the entire season, stands up in front of a team that has been doing two-a-days for the past, what, six months at this point, and he starts talking about how they're not doing their job and they're not doing good enough, the pipes will break because of how hard they're going to swirly that guy at halftime. Okay, so I've heard about this speech. I've not seen the speech, but I've heard about the speech. I honestly thought this was a rumor. I really seriously did for, for a few reasons. And, you know, as you grow up, and this is a message for anybody, as you grow up, you have to learn how to be a leader. Some people, it just comes naturally. Some people just have that charisma and you want to follow them wherever they go because they have charisma and you just feel that it factor. Sure. Okay. That you just, you just do. I understand At Vanderbilt University, there are two athletic programs that probably get looked at a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Women's soccer, men's baseball. Yep. Look, men's baseball is legit, okay? Arguably the best program in the nation, arguably the best program in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Vanderbilt baseball is different, okay? So if a Vanderbilt baseball player – is coming in and telling me this, I may listen to it. May. And I say may because because there's a little bit more to this. I am not 
going to listen to my kicker who was just brought onto the football team, regardless of gender, right? Just because she tells us that we need to do something again, regardless of gender, I'm especially not going to listen to my kicker who has been on this team for about a week and might've been at practice once or twice while we're working our tails off Mm -hmm. the leaders of a football team lead by example. First, that is where you lead first. You can talk all the crap you want to, but if you're not backing it up, Mm -hmm. nobody is going to follow you into the fight. If you are working your tail off, you're throwing up during practices, you're busting it during sprints, you're in the weight room early, you're in the weight room late, you're in the locker rooms, you're in and studying film, you're doing every little thing it takes to be better. I will listen to you Mm -hmm. because you know it. You may not even be the best player, but you can be the leader of the team. Mm -hmm. The other leader of a team is the best player. Because if he's working hard, he's doing everything we just mentioned, and on the football field, we're seeing it pay off. Right. And he can get the numbers. He's putting up the numbers, and I can look him in the face, and he and I know that I'm not working as hard as him. I'm not putting in the extra effort as him. I'm not putting in the time in the weight room, in the film room, in class, and I'm not doing any of that. Yeah, I'm going to listen to him because he's putting in that extra effort, and it's working for him on the football field. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to you. Do not stand up in a locker room that you have not been a member of except for three days and try to tell me what we are doing wrong. Mm -hmm. No, because you have not been through the crap we've been through. You have not been through the summer workouts that we all coordinated together through text messages because we couldn't be around each other because of COVID. You have not been through any of the meetings that we have been through through this entire season. You have not been through the workouts we've been through. You have not done crap. And honestly, these players may see her as a publicity stunt. Don't try to give me a rah-rah speech. Mm -hmm. Jameis Winston is an absolute idiot. But when he gave a speech in the locker room the year after he graduated and he happened to be back because the Bucs were off, he won us a Heisman. He won us a national championship. He broke all sorts of records at my university. I will listen to him. He may be an absolute idiot but he knows what he's talking about and he's done it for this university in my field. I am not going to listen to an art major tell me that I need to work harder in my chemistry degree. No, sir. Well, I think that's a hundred percent correct because you want to talk about equal treatment for genders. I guarantee you if that, if Sarah is a guy, I mean, better watch her back. She's going to get beat up after that game. Oh dude, they're telling, look, Look, I again, I they're telling her to shut the f up. Yeah. No, sit down. If right. she is a guy, he, they are telling her sit down. Mm-hmm. Now, look, this also goes back to more backstories that we don't know. We're just going right. based on what we've been told. Look, she may be well respected throughout the athletic the the athletic co- uh, complex. She may be in the locker rooms all the time, or she may be in the weight room all the time doing her workout for soccer. Mm-hmm. She may be doing all this other stuff, but. There is a huge difference in doing it for your thing and mm-hmm. then coming in and helping. If from day one she came in 
And yes, she had to do the publicity stuff. And then after that, she was working on the field on her own. And she was in, she was going through and rewatching her tapes to see what she can do differently. If she's talking to the coaches or she's talking to the other kickers that have COVID and saying, Hey, look at my film. Tell me what I need to do better. If she's in there day and night, I'm at least going to respect that she's trying. Mm-hmm. She still can't get up and give me a rah-rah speech at halftime of the next to last game of the football season that she thinks that she deserves it because everybody in the media and everybody on college game days talked about her all day. Cause you haven't pulled, yeah. you haven't proved crap to me. And until you prove something, I don't care what you say, what rings you have on your finger from a different sport or who you think is about to be your best friend. Cause they're hitting you up on Twitter. No. Yeah. This goes beyond sports, though. This this is like straight to leadership theory, whether you're talking about sports or not. I mean, George Washington single-handedly stopped a rebellion against this country because he got up and spoke to his men. And the reason that no man there could argue with him is because they were there with him at Valley Forge. They knew that he was the guy that led the charge. And he had, you know, suffered and done just as much as they had been there with them every single step of the way. And that's how you develop a sense of camaraderie in a team. That's how you develop a sense of leadership and where people are actually going to take your opinion seriously. Because I guarantee you there's not another human being on earth at that time that they would have listened to other than George Washington because of what they knew he had done for them specifically and the sacrifices he had made. That's absolutely that that is the difference effort. It is a very simple word that not a lot of people understand how far it goes Mm -hmm. in proving that you should be somebody that people look up to. You don't walk into a locker room Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, I'm going to be the first female to play power five football. Everybody should listen to me. I don't really care if you're the first Swahili person to ever play football. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unless you prove to me that you're worth it. I'm not going to give it two craps about it. Now, again, put in some time, get, put in. No, some time. yeah. Put in effort. If she may and look, all this stuff she may be doing this week. And if she is, please let us know More power but to right it. now. She looks like a publicity stunt mm. that Vanderbilt is trying or had tried to prove. And if it was Derek Mason, then it's Derek Mason tried to put over to make the university look good. And now her job is to become a kicker in college football. She's that she's not a soccer player playing college football anymore. She's now a kicker. It's different kicking a football than it is kicking a soccer ball. There's different techniques. There's different approaches. There's different ways that your foot hits the ball. Every bit of it, it she needs to be learning that this week. And if she does, I, I, then you're going to see instant improvement next week. No, she didn't get to kick a field goal in the game. The only time they actually got to kick off was this the second half. The second half kick off. And yeah. that was only her her only opportunity, which by the way, go back and watch that. She kicked it like a soccer kicker. And mm-hmm. it, it yes, you didn't have the opportunities. But now, now that that she's getting bashed a little bit and it's not all we love you, we love you, we love you. Now step on the football field with us and let's mm-hmm. see what you got. If you kick a ball deep, I don't want to see you running off to the sidelines. You kick a ball deep. You're going, your tail's going down there and you're trying to make sure that they, that they don't score a touchdown because if if we, 
Exactly. If these, if the 10 guys in front of you miss and it's you and that football player and that football player runs past you because you didn't put up any effort, I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what you think you did for this sport. You, we are now all equal on this football mm-hmm. team when it comes to the way that I look at you. You are a football player. Now, have the mentality of a football and, player and not the mentality of a soccer ball player where, or soccer player where you're just going to kick it and roll. Yeah, and honestly, Joe, even if what happens is, and this is why it's important to bring this up where you were talking about effort, even if they return the ball and she is the last line of defense, every other Vanderbilt player has been blown past and that, that person carrying the ball is returning it towards her. I don't even care if she gets her clock cleaned and winds up on her back. She better stand there and try yeah. to stop him. And if yeah. she does that, I'll at least respect her. Look, at least at least some punters and and some kickers who have no athletic ability whatsoever at least try to make mm-hmm. a tackle. Right. Look like they're trying. I want to see that. I do not want to see her kicking it and running it off the football field. Like, hey, I did my job. Let me get off here. Nope, 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 nope. no. You're a football player now. And if, the, if there's an opportunity for you to stop somebody from doing something that could cause us to lose a football game, then you will do it. And that is how you get respect in this locker mm-hmm. room. I do not, I'm not giving you respect because you told me you deserve it. Well, because I, I don't care. Look, I'm, I'm happy that you won your, your soccer SEC championship yeah. and that you helped this, the, this university get that championship and your name is on the plaque. And I'm look, thank you for doing that, for helping this university get notoriety. Now you now need respect. And if you're not going to get respect from this entire locker room, unless you're putting in the work to become better, because every day we get on this field, that's what we're doing. And we're not over there doing PR photo shoots and we're not over there doing interviews and we're not, not going and looking at the game film. We are putting in the effort because we've got to get ready for a football game on Saturday, not another interview with ESPN or college game day or FS one or whatever it is. It's game time. I don't care if we haven't won a game all season. We're going to act like we're going to win this one this weekend. I think that's a perfect place to leave it, Joe. If somebody is interested, maybe these people in Montgomery are missing your voice. If they want to listen to you, how do they, how do, they do that? Uh, 97.7 ESPN The Zone. You can download the app. We uh, I am on from 9 to 11 with Tom Abraham uh, every single Monday through Friday. You can also follow me on social media at Joe Hunk. Uh, Instagram is at the Joe Hunk, and you can follow me there. I keep everybody updated on everything happening uh, with what's going on with me in my life as far as the show and everything is concerned, and you'll get it all there. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, anytime, bro. All right. We'll talk to you later. That is Joe Hunk of ESPN 97.7. We're going to take a quick break here, and we will be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And today's Daily Dose of Stupid is brought to you by the one and only Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Been a little while since she's been on a Daily Dose of Stupid. We can never stay away from her for too long because, as you've come to expect, she is a overrunning fountain full of stupid. And so this is no different. So apparently AOC is actually getting into the fashion business. She's actually had a shop 
on her, I guess, website or campaign site for some time now. The truth is, Joe Manchin actually recently mentioned, because they got into a tiff with one another, uh, he kind of jokingly but accurately said, I don't really understand what she does all day except, like, make Instagram posts or whatever. <laughs> and uh, she actually, I, that's actually true. She's much more of a internet celebrity than she is an actual congressperson doing legislation. I mean, I don't just say this because I don't like her or because she's a Democrat. There are lots of Democrats that spend much of their time doing legislation, and I wish that they would spend more time on Instagram like AOC uh, as opposed to actually making policy at the time. I, I really wish that Nancy Pelosi or Dianne Feinstein or any of those people spent a lot more time doing internet garbage instead of trying to ruin everyone's life. That would actually be an improvement, in my opinion, and that's one of the reasons, just one of the many reasons, that AOC is by far my favorite congressperson, because she makes my job easy. And she has done it yet again, people. She is actually, I just love the, the utter lack of self-awareness coming from AOC. Uh, this is from her website. She is putting out a shirt. You can go to the AOC website and buy this. Tax the Rich. It's a single-colored sweatshirt. It only has one color in the design, yet somehow it is $58. That's right, you can look at the price tag right there. 58 big ones for the AMC Tackler shirt. Uh, which, I mean, here's the thing. There are a lot of people on the right that I've seen cover this that are calling this hypocrisy because it is kind of funny charging people 58 bucks for a sweatshirt that says tax the rich because only a rich person could buy it. But I say this is not hypocrisy. This shirt itself is a tax on the rich, a stupid tax, but it is a tax going to a congressperson, so a member of the government, and only a rich person could pay 58 bucks for a sweatshirt. Ergo, the shirt itself is a tax on the rich. So it's not hypocrisy. It's actually very much in line with the stated values of AOC. Uh, I, I say that is the case. But honestly, this is a preview of socialism. That's what this is. Like I said, you're sending money to a member of the government and not getting much in return. You're getting a crappy sweatshirt that you could probably go down to the, your local, I guess in New York it would be Bodega, where AOC's from, but here, your local gas station, and buy a sweatshirt, uh, sh a sweatshirt of, I'm sure, similar quality for maybe 20 bucks. I, I mean, I don't really have a lot of sweatshirts, I don't really buy sweatshirts, I like short sleeve shirts, but, you know, I'm sure that it's not going to be $58, uh, there's no question about that, but also notice, and I, I want to bring this up one more time to point this out, I thought this was pretty hilarious as well. If you'll notice that underneath the tax the rich mantra, uh, which is both brave and beautiful, uh, <laughs> you'll see that she has the AOC logo, which I found very interesting because it's just the letters AOC, it's not actually her name. See, I thought, because we remember we had this conversation about a month ago, that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez she had actually asserted that saying AOC is sexist or something, and that when Donald Trump refers to her as AOC, that that is degrading to women. I, I don't really, I guess now AOC is degrading women by calling herself AOC and having her actual brand in it. And by the way, AOC is also 
her Twitter handle, yet somehow this is racist. I, I don't know, maybe it's like the confusing and nonsensical rules that people sometimes attribute to the N-word that only certain people can say it, but certain people can't say it. Uh, and used to, people would make that ridiculous and illogical excuse for, well, just black people can say it. But then they were like, but we also want white liberals to be able to say it. So basically just the only people that can't say it are people that we disagree with politically. And that seems to be AOC's stance as well, since she's literally putting the AOC moniker on the t-shirts that she herself is selling. I do just love the utter lack of self-awareness from socialists, because you've got guys like Bernie that are millionaires and have three houses that are insanely elaborate that no regular person from just off the street could possibly afford. You've got a similar thing with people like Elizabeth Warren. You've got Nancy Pelosi with just giant tubs full of ice cream that she can go to. And, and not just like Briars or, you know, your run-of-the-mill ice cream. This is like $13, $14 a pint ice cream. And she's got two or $300 of it clearly visible in a freezer when everybody else is just, you know, screw you little people. You can fend for yourselves, and I know that we have all these policies that we're supporting that say you can't work, but it's fine because I have a cooler full of designer ice cream. Uh, Obama's the same way. They bought, what was it, like a $27 million house in Martha's Vineyard, something ridiculous. I don't know if that was the exact price tag, but it was somewhere along those lines. Uh, and, and that's on top of the already insanely expensive house that they have in Washington, D.C., which is the most expensive place to live in the entire country, those counties surrounding Washington, D.C. are by far the most expensive real estate that you can actually live in. And, and they've got a house there and they also have a house in Martha's Vineyard. But this goes down to a very common, very, uh, it, it happens every single time that socialism is tried, to be perfectly honest. Socialism is for the people, not the socialists. That's why when you look at Venezuela, you can have people literally hunting down stray dogs and cats in the streets to kill them and eat them because that's all they have. And then you've got Hugo Chavez, or in this one particular case, Maduro, who can just be caught on camera just scarfing down empanadas. And I mean, does that guy look like he's missed a meal in a while? No, I don't think so. That's how it always works. Socialism is for the people, not the socialists. They're fine with profiting off of capitalism, and AOC is fine with driving out jobs from New York from Amazon, and not that I'm a huge fan of Amazon or Jeff Bezos anyway, but she's fine with driving those jobs out while simultaneously saying, well, capitalism is evil and exploitive, and uh, all it does is overcharge people for things, and meanwhile, she's got a $58 sweatshirt on her website. Because again... That is for the people, not the socialists, like AOC. And we've seen the same thing with Democrats ignoring their COVID restrictions over and over again. We've done stories about that. But since capitalism is so evil and so exploitive, I thought maybe what would be helpful for AOC, because I'm sure she watches the show like every night. It's her favorite show. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that she would uh, be interested to know that 
just did some comparison and, and not even necessarily just comparison to any random sweatshirt that we could find. I thought it might be fun to do a comparison to people that actually believe in capitalism. So I looked at some of my favorite conservative stores and looked at some of their selections of sweatshirts and saw what we've got here. So the Blaze Media sweatshirt, they have the Santifa <laughs> claws. Uh, which is probably my personal favorite. I do really like that one. That one's 40 bucks. You've got Libertarian Country, which is a company that I've bought quite a few of my shirts from. I've actually worn some of their shirts on the air. That one's only 35 and that's a full hoodie. It even has a hood attached to it, and it's still significantly less, almost half the price of AOC. And then the, the worst capitalist of all, the ones that are profiting off of guns, the NRA, who, by the way, doesn't sell guns, but they do sell sweatshirts that have the NRA logo on them. That one's about half the price of AOC sweatshirt at $29.95. So it's odd that these evil exploitive capitalists somehow have cheaper products than the democratic socialist that wants everything to be free. Well, ultimately, she doesn't want everything to be free. That's the issue. You see, in the real world, when they're economic systems are actually applied, that's exactly what happens. The capitalists have to compete with one another and drive cost down. They make things cheaper and better and more affordable to the average person. That's what a market does. Socialists believe that one person should be in control of the prices, that government should be setting a standard and then they decide what you pay. Markets and competition don't factor into it. And that's why everything stagnates. Every single time socialism has ever been tried, that's what always happens. Treating things like commodities, as opposed to treating them like they are rights or public goods, always results in better products for less money. That's how it's always been. That's how it's always going to be. So that comparison I just gave you, that's a pretty good little summary of the difference in socialism and capitalism. The capitalists are charging less because they find ways to create better products for their customers. That's how it works. Just like government, capitalists drive costs down. Socialists, like AOC, do not. Let's go to the Chaplain's Report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we are going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel, and I have to say, we're, we're moving right along, and we're sort of getting into the heart of 1 Samuel, and I just love this book so much. Now, you may recall that in our last reading, we were going through chapter 18, and we've started to see the breakdown of the relationship between Saul and David. So originally, Saul and David were on great terms. This was around the time that David slaying the giant. We move into this portion of the story, and now what we're seeing is that divide. Saul has become jealous of David. He believes that David is going to take his throne away, and because of that, he has gone into a panicked rage 
and tried to kill him multiple times. That didn't work. So he tried to send him out on these crazy missions to try to have him killed by the hands of the Philistines. That didn't work either. In fact, every single thing he has tried to do to hurt David has only made him stronger. David is basically the, uh, the Obi-Wan of the Bible. Is like, yes, and if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. That's <laughs> the David line, apparently. But David is going through this right now, and we pick this up in chapter 19, and we see a little bit of old Saul kind of rear his head here. And so we'll go ahead and read that passage. We'll start in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 19. Now Saul told his son Jonathan and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan informed David, saying, My father Saul is seeking to put you to death. Now then, please be on your guard in the morning, and stay in the hiding place, and conceal yourself. And as for me, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field, where you were hiding, and I will speak with my father about you, and whatever I find out, I will tell you. For he took his life in his hand, and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced, and then you would sin against the innocent blood by putting David to death for no reason. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So a couple things that I wanted to mention here. First of all, when we're looking at this relationship, and there's sort of a, a triple interplay between David and Saul, and then Saul and Jonathan, and David and Jonathan. And so there's these three really important relationships between the three of them that are playing an important role here. And you may recall that last we left, back in chapter 18, that Saul was devising all these elaborate schemes to try to get David killed. And now basically he's just said, yep, done with that. I'm not going to even try that anymore. I'm just going to straight up put him to death. And he just calls for the death of David openly and saying that everyone, if you find him, kill David. Basically, David becomes a fugitive and a wanted man. And then David comes to Jonathan with this problem, and they both really don't understand what's going on. And so Jonathan says, you know what? Let me talk to my dad. Let's see if we can reason this out. And he does, and it works. All he does is present an argument to Saul that's rational says, look, David's done great things for you. He's not disloyal to you. He's killed all the Philistines that you've asked him to do. He's been a loyal servant. He's never disobeyed you. Why, why would you go after him? And by the way, if you do go after him, that's going to be a problem for you because you will have spilled innocent blood. I think there's a couple reasons that's really significant, but if you just take a step back, man, I got to say, Jonathan is one of the most underrated characters in the whole scripture, in my opinion. And I know that's partly because we don't see a lot about him, and he only shows up in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's only like three or four times, and, and it's not very long. But seriously, Jonathan is one of the bravest, most rational, most loyal people in the entire Old Testament. And that is high praise. Because going before his dad like this, his dad is in a jealous rage, that is so profound, he is willing to use his own daughters as pawns in his game to get to David. And Jonathan knows this and still goes to his dad and speaks on David's behalf. 
his dad could have him executed. I mean, yeah, he is Saul's son, but Saul has the authority to kill Jonathan at this point. He could denounce him as a traitor, saying that he favored David over me. Like, all of these things could happen. And Jonathan, because he loves David, and also I think because he loves his dad and wants his dad to do the right thing, he goes to his dad, who holds his life in his hand and says, Dad, what are you doing here? Come on. You know that what you're doing is not right. You know that David is not a traitor. And he's done everything you've ever asked him. You need to stop. And what's amazing about that, and I think that maybe God was with him on this, it happens. Now, we know the end of the story, and so this isn't going to last. But for a time, we see a return of old Saul. Saul comes to his senses like, you know what, son, you're right, I'm sorry. And, you know, everybody, that order I gave to kill David, yeah, let's nix that. Why is Saul so unstable? Why is it that one minute he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill David with my own hand, and then, or, you know, David's my best friend, and then he tries to kill David, and then after he tries to kill David, he's like, well, maybe I shouldn't kill him directly. I'm just going to figure out a way to make the Philistines do it, and then that fails, and so he's back to killing him directly, and now he's back to, no, I don't need to kill David. He actually is a, a pretty good servant. And then we know that in the future, he's going to be back to trying to kill David, and, and he's actually also going to be back to not killing David and then trying to kill him again. And so you see this constant back and forth. Saul can never seem to make up his mind on what he actually wants to do. And it actually reminds me of another verse where it says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. See, here's the problem. Saul kind of wants to serve God and also kind of wants to serve himself. That's the issue here, right? Because what he wants is to kill David because David is a threat to his throne. That's what Saul wants, but that's not what God wants. And occasionally, he will default to do what God wants, especially when he realizes he's in the wrong. But it's never very long until Saul's back to doing what Saul wants. And that's the problem. A man cannot serve two masters. He's trying to serve his own interest and God's interest at the same time. This is why complete submission is what Christians are called to do. Because you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve yourself, you can't serve money, you can't serve the world, and serve God at the same time. Can't be done. Never has been. That's why we have to completely submit our wills and turn over to Him. We can't serve God's interest sometime and then serve our interest the rest of the time. No, we have to serve God's interest all the time doesn't mean we can't occasionally do things that we want or occasionally do things that are good for us, but it all has to be done under the umbrella, the larger calling of our oath, which is to serve God and submit our wills to His. Saul wasn't doing that. Saul was okay with occasionally serving his own interest, even though it was a direct contradiction of what God wanted to do. And that's why it seems like you can't really get a read on Saul, because he's constantly changing his mind as to what he wants to do, and that's why. You see, his feelings, what he's feeling about David isn't matching what he's doing. His will and his emotions are not in sync with one another. And so sometimes he's letting his feelings win and sometimes he's letting his will to do the right thing win. But either way, it's constantly shifting. And that's the problem that he has here. This is why consistency is so important is because when we do have that consistency, it will train both our head and our heart to seek after God and do the right thing. That's why consistency is so important. 
even when it seems like an inconsistency is benign, especially when you're talking about morality, it isn't. Because you have to have that consistency, that one anchor that, that holds you to the truth. And Saul wants to drop anchor every now and then, and then occasionally just let the anchor up and float with the waves, and that's just not how this works. Let's go ahead and look at the next couple of verses in this passage. So this is the same chapter, verses 9 and 10. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul, as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he escaped from Saul's presence so that, the stuck of the, so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So that didn't take long. Now granted, we don't know exactly what the time frame is. Maybe there was a period of two or three months that David was perfectly comfortable living in the palace, and it seems to be that that's what's going on here because he's just hanging out in the palace playing his harp, like, you know, it's a normal day or something like that. That's not something you would do, I think, if this happened the next day, that right after there was a death warrant put out for you, that you're just like, oh, that's over now? Yeah, I'm just going to kind of hang out in the courtyard and play my harp. There's probably some amount of time to where David felt comfortable with this, but to me, the most fascinating and frankly confusing part of this verse comes where it says an evil spirit from God. Now, we know that God isn't an evil spirit, and we know that he doesn't command demons because of other passages. So what does this mean? I think there's a couple of different ways that you could look at it. It could mean that God just sent a spirit that kind of drummed up his, his worst urges, because we're not to believe here, I, I think, and there's no indication from the scripture that suggests this, that Saul loses his free will and is completely at the mercy of God at this time. It makes me think of the time where it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, you could read that as hardening his heart against any kind of outside influence. You could also read it as hardening his heart and quickening his heart so that he will basically steal himself on what he is going to decide to do. So in other words, he's not robbing anybody of their free will or making them do something. It seems, based on the scripture, that all is really going on here is that, and, and we know for a fact that Saul is capable of this because he's already done it twice. He's already tried to kill David with his own hands, with a spear, twice in the previous chapter. And so because of that, it seems that what's actually going on here is that Dave, a similar thing happened with Pharaoh, is that God merely allowed a spirit to influence him in order to hasten him to do what he was already planning on doing anyway. That maybe if left to his own devices or no spiritual influence whatsoever, Saul probably does this again. It just may take him a little longer, and so maybe what happened is that God sped up the process, and God, being all-knowing and knowing what Saul would have done otherwise, knows that all that is going on here is maybe he's just being encouraged a little bit by the spirit. But it does say something interesting about the fact that spirits do have an influence over us. Not that they can control us, not that they possess our bodies and make us do things like they did back in, in you know, the time of Christ or whatever, but that it seems that at any point in human history that there is a spiritual warfare going on inside of us, and there are spiritual forces that do have influence over us. Not control, but influence. And that's an important thing to remember as well. So then the question really becomes, why would God want that to happen? Why would God want this event to take place? 
I tend to think that what is going on here is that God knew that David needed to get the heck out of that palace. And so maybe what happened is, like, let's say the spirit never influences Saul here. And what happens is that Saul gets these real murderous intentions in his mind late at night when David's not expecting it and just slips in his room and kills him and that's the end of King David. Maybe what's happening here is because God gave an oath to David that he would be the king of Israel, that part of the way that he is going to make sure that that promise is fulfilled is that he makes or, or sends a spirit to influence Saul to do what he was planning on doing anyway a little bit quicker, so this time he misses. So this time he doesn't kill David. Maybe that's what's going on. I really don't know, and I don't know that we'll ever know until we actually get to ask God directly. But I think that that's a very plausible reason for why God would have allowed this to happen. He's not causing Saul to sin. He's not making Saul do anything he doesn't want to do or trying to get him to do something he wouldn't have done absent of that spirit any other time. But he does want this to happen earlier or happen at this appointed time because for some reason in God's great plan that we can't see every aspect of, he needed David to leave right then and there. And so, because he has this indication that Saul wants to kill him again, he escapes, and we'll look at that actually probably uh, next week. But really, I think that what this is a great summary of is the reason that human beings should not have this much power. Because if Saul had succeeded and his spirit actually gone right through David's heart and killed him? You know what would have happened to Saul? From a worldly perspective, nothing. Now, God probably would have punished him if that had happened. And God can do that because he's God. But from a worldly perspective, there would be no legal means of making sure that Saul paid the price for shedding innocent blood, which, by the way, Jonathan asserts in the verse that we just read, which assumes what? That Saul is not the morality here. God's standard is the morality. doesn't matter if you're king or not. You don't get to just do whatever you want. You are still subject to God's understanding of law and morality. And if you do not follow that, then you are going to be held accountable for it. Maybe not in this lifetime, but it will happen eventually. And that's why monarchy is a really bad system of government or dictatorship or whatever else we're talking about, because giving a human being absolute power over life and death over another human being violates the right to life, the very life that they were imparted when God created them. It's the same reason that murder is wrong. It's the same reason that abortion is wrong. It's the same reason that curtailing a person's liberty is wrong, because that is a natural right that was imparted to that person by God, and no other human has the right to take that away from him. So when you understand natural rights, this is a great passage to understand that because it assumes that there is a morality that exists outside and superseding King Saul here. That just because he's king doesn't mean whatever he says is okay. And ultimately, it also assumes that despite the fact that he's king, God is really still in control of the situation. And friends, that is a truth that remains true to this day, regardless of who our elected officials are or our leaders. Look, no matter how terrible or awful or evil they are, no matter how many of our rights that they try to trample, ultimately God is still in control. And that is a comforting thought.
Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.